to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. This is our last episode for season five. This week, we are talking about podcasts and podcasting. I'm Rick Lee. And as usual, I'm joined by Lee Johnson and Charles Peterson. And as not usual, we are joined by new co-host for season six. This has already been announced on social media, Jason Reed. So Jason, welcome to the bar. Make yourself (laughs) comfortable. You're going to be here for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) So why don't we start with you, Jason? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving this week? Thanks. Yeah. So as a bit of a departure for me, as you'll get to know, I'm going to have a martini in honor of my friend Ron, who makes a powerful martini. And my rave for this week is the Bread and Puppet Theater. They're a political performance group located now in Glover, Vermont, who travel around the country and around the world performing skits about everything from reparations to defunding the police. They're in Portland, and it was just great to be out on a field with hundreds of people watching these skits and feeling like maybe all was not lost in the world, because their current thing is called the Apocalypse Defiant Circus, and I feel like, yes, we must defy the apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's funnier than apocalypse. I do not believe in the apocalypse. I refuse to believe in the apocalypse. I turn my back on the apocalypse. That's the Petersonian optimism right there. Let us know how that works out for you. (laughs) So, Charles, the bartender standing by, wondering what your last drink is going to be. Oh, that sounds so grim. You mean my last drink at this bar? The last drink at this bar. It's going to be my last. Though some have suggested I should stop drinking, but that's (laughs) that's neither here nor there. I have often praised the 18th Street Brewery in Gary, Indiana, my hometown, and I would do so a final time as a host of this show. And I will have three fingers of their rye whiskey. Neat. Mm. Call us 18th Street. (laughs) And are you ranting or raving? I am raving. I am raving in the spirit of Haiti. I'm raving about the fact that so many formerly colonized nations were quite honest about their feelings about the departure of a certain long-serving monarch of the UK. Who shall not be named. Who shall not be named. But whether it be the dance party that went off on Ghanaian television or whether it be the Irish football fans who were chanting Lizzie in a box, I say, I'm not going to weep crocodile tears for you. I'm just going to be like, I'm happy because you're gone and everything you represent was terrible for us. So I am raving for the spirit of Haiti. Wow, that was a rave that had a rant and then a rave contained within it. (laughs) I'm evolving. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving? Well, it's that time of year again, so I am going to have a Oktoberfest. I've moved from Sam Adams Summer Ale to Sam Adams (laughs) Oktoberfest now. I'm actually ranting today, and I'm ranting about educational surveillance software. I've noticed that my students, I don't know who hurt them, but it was somebody (laughs) who was using educational surveillance software. They keep asking me these odd questions like, do I need to be in a special browser when I take my quiz? And can I look away? And should I make sure that all of my doors are open? And I don't entirely know how all of these softwares work. I'm against them on principle. But stop traumatizing our students with this software. Just let them be. 
<laughs> Rick, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? So I've discovered a fairly new drink in the world of cocktails. I'm going to have a white Negroni. And this week <laughs> I am raving about the jazz musician Ramsey Lewis. <laughs> Unfortunately, we recently lost Ramsey Lewis. He was a Chicagoan and one of these sort of unsung jazz heroes. So let's celebrate Ramsey Lewis. Let's rave about the life of Ramsey Lewis. Here, here, here. So, Jason, I know we're talking about podcasts and podcasting, but what did you have in mind? Well, I guess a couple things. I mean, one is just I'm interested in this relatively new form of communication, also of entertainment or whatever you want to call it, and specifically the role that philosophy can play in it or what it can do for philosophy, having a philosophy podcast. You know, why do we do this? I mean, why take on this extra responsibility? What are we hoping to do in putting our voices out there in a world that has a crowded attention sphere of different podcasts, of different things? So I'm curious what you guys think about that. I'm also interested to answer my own question, I guess, on something. start, I think we want the cool kids to like us. I think we're so in the shadows of any popular sense of what's interesting or cool or worthy of attention that we're like, we're going to be podcasters. And that way we'll show the world the really geeky shit that we do that made us really marginal in the first place. No, that's just, just I'm joking. Because nothing says cool like podcasting. Right. <laughs> nothing says cool like trying to be cool. <laughs> It seems to be working for Joe Rogan. But I've said this before in previous episodes. I moved into this form or I joined this brilliant podcast because my sense of what philosophy is, is inherently what we're doing. Philosophy as a verb, not necessarily as a text or not necessarily as a body of knowledge, which of course it is or can be. But the actual act of posing questions, interrogating issues and problems in a really meticulous, refined and insightful way is what philosophy is. And podcasts, I think more so than any other form, are absolutely best suited to do that. To pick up on one of the threads of what Charles just said, I've never really practiced public philosophy until this podcast. I think maybe I had an implicit suspicion about it because my philosophical practice, as listeners might have become aware over the seasons, is fairly textual, it's fairly technical and rigorous in a scholarly sense. And I think that one of the things for me personally that the podcast does is it helps me sort of break out of that technicality, that really tight and close work that I do, and show that I do that for a reason, that that is not an isolated thing, and to try to force me to bring the work that I do to the rest of the world. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. I think that one of the advantages of podcasting is that we're doing philosophy in real time, live, in conversation. And I do think that the best way to do philosophy is in conversation. But if I could just add one more thing, podcasts are free. Right. It's the one way that everybody can get into a conversation with philosophers without having to pay for a degree or buy a subscription to a journal or buy a book. 
And there's so many expensive gates around the work people in our profession do. And I love that we have this platform where we can introduce philosophy to people who might not know what it is, but who are smart, who want to hear reflective conversations about things of import to them. And it doesn't cost anything. Mm -hmm. If you think about the canonization of the Western tradition, you know, it starts with conversations in the streets, right? It starts with the Socratic dialogues in the market or outside the temples. And, you know, we're just kind of doing that via Zoom now. Yeah. Of course, we need to start harassing innocent people walking past us and <laughs> grab them by the toga and say, hey, what do you think about merit? Have you visited our Patreon page? <laughs> <laughs> well, apropos of both of those comments, I'm teaching right now in my Philosophy 100 class, Plato's Apology. And it seems to me, like Charles, you're onto something that at least as Socrates describes his own practice, he did the ancient Greek form of podcasting. He was out mm -hmm. in the public square. And to pick up Lee's point, he was doing philosophy as a verb in public. And he insists in the apology that he did it for free. So you have all those elements already in Socrates that the public practice of philosophy is the most important practice of philosophy, that it's free is also important as well. What about you, Jason? Why did you sign up to this crazy project? Well, I mean, like you guys have said, I've always been interested in doing a public dimension of philosophy. I've had a blog pretty much since blogs have existed. Though my blog can be a bit self-indulgent in all sorts of ways, like reviewing books that only I and a few other people have read, and then talking about movies that are pretty obscure sometimes. <laughs> but it is free. It's available <laughs> to anyone who has access to the internet. And I do think that one of the things that interests me, as Charles was saying, about the fact that philosophy doesn't really have a presence in our culture at large, and I think that needs to be changed. It needs to be changed because I think our culture would benefit from it. And I also feel like, I don't know if you have confronted this with students. I have students sometimes who they're getting towards the end of their undergraduate career and they don't want to go to graduate school for all sorts of reasons, a lot of them good actually, mm -hmm. but they don't want this thing to end. And they feel very depressed about the idea that philosophy doesn't seem to exist outside of academia. They want to continue talking. They want to continue knowing what's going on. And they feel like once they graduate, they're just going to be cut off from that because they can't imagine the kind of life that they're having in the classroom continuing once school ends. And I think that saddens me. And there needs to be a space for philosophy to continue outside of those people who go on to graduate school and professionalization. And I think blogs, podcasts, things like that can offer a spaces for people to continue to do philosophy, even if doing philosophy isn't you know, how they live or try to make a living. So it seems like we're exposing two sides of the why question. The first side is the importance of public philosophy. The second side is the importance of this podcast for philosophers. What I find exciting about philosophy podcasts is that they serve both audiences frequently. They speak not just to philosophers, but they speak also to philosophers. But I'm constantly amazed at how many non-philosophers, that is people who have no philosophical education or training, find a great deal of interest and excitement in listening to philosophy podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's one moment of, you know, I'm rarely optimistic, but this is one small moment <laughs> in which I become optimistic. 
if I could just share that optimism, I mean, I think that there are a lot of great philosophy podcasts out there right now. And I think that they've all been really good for our profession. And one of the reasons is because they have managed to capture what Rick just called the excitement, what Jason and Charles were talking about earlier as the live, you know, verbing of <laughs> philosophy. And it's true that in our profession, most of our work is entirely focused on the end product, the monographs, the journal articles, the conference presentations, things like that. But that's not really the most exciting part of philosophy. The most exciting part of philosophy is getting to those final products. And one of the things I do think has been really good about the proliferation of philosophy podcasts for our profession is that now we're all getting to hear our colleagues work through things, right? We're not just hearing the final product. We're hearing how it is that they're working towards what may be a monograph or an article at some point, but really just working through ideas. And that is something that I think all of us who went to grad school miss about grad school. And all of us just who have smart friends who we like to talk to miss about those conversations. I really do miss graduate school. And <laughs> only recently, over maybe the past five years, I've started sitting in on some of my colleagues courses and my god is it really enjoyable to be a yeah. student it's really enjoyable to hear a smart person talk about something they know and i think this is what the world of philosophy podcasts opens up for people who maybe never even had that experience in the first place they get a little bit of taste of what being a graduate student is like to add to that in terms of the experience of graduate school and being in an intellectual community a vibrant if you're lucky intellectual community what most people don't see is that there is an interesting performativity and there's a dramatic nature of these type of conversations. And you can see the passion mm -hmm. that philosophers have for the topics, for the issues, for the texts and the figures. And I don't think anybody gets any of that from the conference presentation or from the monograph or from whatever. But if you actually see people sweaty and passionate and gesticulating <laughs> and, and angry and disagreeing, right, you can see, oh, this is a very, very embodied experience. And I think podcasts give you a little bit more of that. I think probably the next step should be like a YouTube series, Celebrity Philosophical Deathmatch, <laughs> where we can actually see people commit their lives to their points. That escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was not expecting that to end with deathmatches. I'm going ahead and telling you guys to throw in the towel the minute I step in the ring. <laughs> Nobody expects Celebrity Philosophical Deathmatch. <laughs> hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. One of the things I think is interesting about this podcast in particular, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it, is the idea of framing shows around topics construed broadly enough that they can appeal to anyone, like fear, like the blues, but are also attempts to think in a very focused way about those topics. So I'm wondering if you people who started this podcast or they were performing would talk about that idea of making this topic focused rather than a figure focused or rather than focusing on some more internal 
internal philosophical ways of presenting philosophy? Well, I guess that's a question for me since I'm <laughs> been here the longest. <laughs> the founder. <laughs> this podcast has been through a few changes over the years. And like any other kind of creative production, we had to find our way as we were doing it. But one of the things that was very important from the beginning was that this podcast not be a class, mm-hmm. but rather we wanted to focus on topics that might be of broad enough interest to the larger public and introduce philosophy sort of behind their backs in that conversation. And I think that that has been something that has been really useful for us. It's something that I hope that people like to listen to, but it's a way of doing philosophy without teaching a class or presenting a paper or something like that, which is the traditional way that we understand how philosophy is done. I think the flip side of that, Lee, is that we also show the ways in which philosophy can contribute to conversations about issues that don't seem immediately or on the surface to be philosophical issues. So, okay, we did have an episode on metaphysics, but what do we have to say about musical theater, right? I think (laughs) that's an interesting thing, that philosophers have something to contribute to a conversation about a topic that doesn't seem philosophical, and that there are many aspects of human experience that yield really positive results when philosophical analysis is brought to them. I mean, if the unexamined life is not worth living, then the examined life can reveal itself to be actually quite fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, certainly with Lee and with Rick and Jason, you seasons ago as a guest, part of the fun was that you begin to see the person beneath the veneer of being a philosopher. You begin to see the person beneath the theory, digging into their subjective thoughts, experiences, Some of the topics that I've proposed or I was in the hot seat on were because I had really legitimate questions of my own that I wanted to benefit from Lee and Rick's insight into. Like when I proposed fear, that was because I wrestled with the question of fear within myself. So it was very helpful for me to have Lee and Rick talk about it with me. And it also helped me to think more clearly about it and understand what I was experiencing at the moment. Yeah, and I think that that's also really central to this conceit of us all sitting in the bar talking. We can talk and we do talk with each other at real bars about literally everything. (laughs) But it's also the case that this is pretty much how a hotel bar or in any other bar, usually more so a dive bar, conversation goes between philosophers is that we often bring in texts, thinkers, philosophical insights in just our normal conversations about whatever. I'm not sure if I went to a conference and a drinking party broke out, or I went to a drinking party and a philosophy conference broke out. So true. So true. You know, one of the things I do want to say that I was a little bit worried about when we all decided we were going to do an episode on podcasting is that this is exactly the kind of navel gazing <laughs> that people accuse both philosophers and podcasters of doing. It's like, you know, it's, it seems like the most obvious thing, right? That if you're a philosopher, you're like, I'm going to start a podcast. Or if you're a podcaster that you're like, I'm very philosophical. But it's important to try to figure out what is this new medium doing for the profession? And how can we utilize this new medium to do philosophy in a different way, maybe, or maybe not, you know, maybe we're 
not doing it in a different way, but definitely in a way that reaches more people? And what are the kind of possibilities that we haven't yet explored? Well, I think it's interesting too, because as we were saying, the different medium or ways of expressing ideas all carry with them different ways of authorizing those ideas or carrying authority, right? You pick up a book and it'll say why you should read this book, you know, the blurbs on the back and so on. You go to a conference and people are announced with their affiliations and their degrees. And here, all those things have kind of been dropped. Yeah. But as Charles was saying, something else is coming out and that is something about us as people because there's a mixture here of both our professional insights because I mean, you know, all of our particular interests, backgrounds and so on, they come out and we go back to some of the things we actually study. But then other stuff that you never know if you just read our publications also comes out as well. So we're kind of in this new space, not authorized by the old things like this is an institution, this book, these credentials. And we're using a new space where we're trying to get people to listen on the force of whether or not we can convey something in the practice of doing something that's worth listening to. And there's a little bit of a without a net feeling to it, which interests me because that's in the best moments, that's how the classroom feels to me. Yes, it feels yeah. to me like when someone brings up something that I hadn't thought before and I'm like, well, yeah, let's talk about that. Those are the most exciting moments in the classroom. And that to me really is philosophy, is those moments where you're like, well, I haven't really thought about that thing and particularly that way before, but let's try to think through it together. And if you don't see that part of philosophy, then you don't really see what philosophy is. It's a good way to find out what you really think about something, yeah. like on the fly, organic, spontaneous. I don't want to say improvised, because that suggests a certain lack of depth, but there's certainly an unstructured nature about what we're doing, which makes it kind of fun. And I also like the fact that this forces us to look toward an audience, to be aware of an audience, to know that someone, hopefully if they download it, the many platforms upon which you'll find this podcast, that we will be aware of them and we're talking to them, intentionally so, because, you know, to reference what Lee said about the navel-gazing of this, it would be amazingly easy for a philosophy podcast to get all like being John Malkovich. <laughs> and it's philosophy, 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 philosophy. <laughs> but I like the notion that this is a new medium, because I think we don't reflect often enough about the effects that the various, as Jason put it, authoritative venues for getting our ideas out there, scholarly journals, academic presses, academic conferences, those structures of authorization actually have an impact on what philosophy gets produced and how philosophy gets produced. And that goes all the way back to the moment where I start thinking about an idea if I'm thinking this is a journal article, this is a conference presentation, this is a book publication, I'm now already limiting what it is that I can say, how it is that I can say it. And I'm not saying podcasting doesn't have limits. What I am saying, though, is it's still new enough that we don't know what it is allowing that other venues don't allow and what its limitations are. And that, to me, I think is worthy of philosophical reflection in a non-navel-gazing sort of way. What is this about? What does it allow? What does it deny? Yeah, the medium is a really odd medium because, not to go all Phaedrus on you guys, but this is kind of a combination. <laughs> 
combination <laughs> of voice and written word. So clearly we're having an unscripted live conversation. And maybe the listeners don't know that, but we don't script out these podcast con- Well, may- they certainly must know Wait, Lee, we Lee, you stepped on my line there. Um, that's yeah. my line. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point, Rick. No, uh, we don't script out these conversations. We have a general outline that we use, but as we all know amongst ourselves and as we say to our guests, we're going to let the conversation go wherever it goes. And so this is an unscripted conversation. It has all of those elements of the spoken word that we read in Plato makes the spoken word advantageous over the written word because the written word, once it's written, it's out there, it's dead, it's separated from the author, and it can be read in a number of different ways. But Podcasts are recorded and we can't go back and correct them. Once they're out there, they're like a written word. You know, they're separated from the author and they can be heard in many different ways and interpreted in many different ways. And so I do think that this is a genuinely new medium that is pushing back forward questions that have been around for 2000 years. Yeah, the medium makes this something new, but I'm going to stick to the heart of the activity, the actual engagement. This is just as old as human beings themselves. Once human beings develop some type of linguistic ability, right? Sitting around the fire after the day's hunt or whatever it is you did, and someone brings up something that happened and someone has a different perspective on it. And someone's like, I'm not sure about that oog, because, you know, oog is my go-to when we talk about primordial in person. This is simply the thing that human beings have always done, but we're just doing it in ones and zeros. It's also a new medium in terms of its reception, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that we're kind of inserting philosophy into it. A different space. As someone who listens to podcasts as well, I tend to listen to them when I'm doing something else. Yeah. I once spent a really enjoyable afternoon stacking a cord of wood and listening to three shows of this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I often put podcasts on when I fold laundry, etc. And it's kind of creating a reflective moment, a space where I might otherwise just zone out or put on some stupid TV show. So there's a way in which there's a certain kind of weird familiarity. People are probably listening to us with headphones or earbuds. We're very close to them. We're inside their ears. And there's a way in which people are receiving this very differently, I think, than they might if this was all written out as print, you know, because for me as a listener, I often feel like I'm the quiet guy in the conversation or I keep wanting to say things, but I don't get to say things. I'm always formulating, I'm formulating my responses to what I'm hearing in a way that I wouldn't if I was just reading this because I would just be reading it because it is a conversation. And even though it's a conversation which we get to talk to each other and our listeners don't, but I feel like it's still invokes that similar sense of like, what would I say about this issue? Or what are they not saying that I really want to hear them say? I mean, that's why, you know, you have the line about couldn't hear you through the headphones sort of line. I do think that it's true. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Jason, because I have this experience sometimes when I'm doing the show notes that I'm listening back to the episode in order to take the notes and look up links and so on. And when one of the other hosts will say, what do you think, Rick? I start answering out loud at the time (laughs) because I sort of forget that they're not here with me or I'm not on the telephone or something. And in that way, it's kind of unlike teaching in the sense that although we have an audience, we're sort of speaking to each person individually because of this headphone situation. 
And there is a strange sort of intimacy that I feel with the hosts of other podcasts that I listen to. I feel like they're my friends. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. I mean, to me, the mark of a good podcast is when I find myself talking back to it. (laughs) And this is something that I frequently do with, well, one of my favorite podcasts is The Partially Examined Mm. Life. It's a group of guys who went to philosophy grad school, but then did something else with their lives. (laughs) Probably something much wiser and more profitable. But I feel like I've listened to these guys for so long and I know them and I find myself saying things like, oh, of course you would say that. Right. (laughs) Same thing with the folks over at What's Left of Philosophy. You know, I feel like I know them now and I'd love their conversations. And I frequently find myself saying, oh, I wish somebody would have said blah, blah, blah. Or but haven't you read this? Or, you know, I couldn't possibly disagree with you more, (laughs) which is something that I say to my actual (laughs) co-hosts. No, that's a great point about the ways in which it draws you in. One thing I do love about certainly this podcast, but the podcasting form, is that I think it's reminded people of the beauty and the power of a conversation, of two people, two intellects, or three or four or however many, sitting there and actually having to listen to each other and having to explain yourself to someone. And I think we've lost that. You know, I grew up in the 70s, and what was a very regular feature of 70s television was the talk show. Yeah. And it wasn't someone coming on to simply hawk a product or advertise a movie or whatever, but they were there to talk about things. I remember Phil Donahue, he would have these long conversations with decision makers and public intellectuals of the time. And I remember Tom Snyder, you know, sitting there smoking cigarettes. But these were people like Truman Capote and James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. So the public had a regular access to heightened levels of intellectual engagement and insight. And I love the fact that I think podcasts have brought us back to that in such an amazing and, as Lee underlined, free way. The Tonight Show, when Johnny Carson hosted it, the guests stayed on for the entire thing so that the first yeah. guest mm-hmm. who was on was still there by the end of it, all the way down at the end of the couch. And that just shows the importance of conversation. The issue for Carson or The Tonight Show as conceived during that time was not come out and tell me the thing you just did and so on, but come out, I want to talk with you and you're going to stay while I talk with other people and we're all going to talk together. That's a kind of space to go back to the Socratic point that was made earlier, Socrates inserted into his practice of philosophy or was his practice Mm. of philosophy. It's funny to think of Johnny Carson as an intellectual midwife, but okay, I'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's also worth pointing out that even in the spaces of philosophy, conversation really hasn't been the primary goal. I mean, the conference talk and then the questions usually at the conference talk are the questions like, why aren't you talking about the thing I'm interested in? Because like, it's, it's a series of different monologues overlapping on each other. There's a reason perhaps why, you know, the show is called Hotel Bar. That maybe that's where the conversation happens outside of the official spaces of philosophy. So, you know, I think that it's also important to point out that conversation hasn't just died on late night TV. It's also died within the discipline as well, or at least has been threatened by a sort of endless demand to have a new idea and promote your new idea and so on. Yeah. Yeah, and it might be worth noting for our listeners who are academics but not philosophers that at philosophy conferences, it is still the norm for people to read papers. 
like read them straight off the page. Mm -hmm. That's one of the worst things about our profession is that we haven't moved forward in our presentation style and we're still just doing this old practice of reading papers, which, you know, there's really no point to spend a couple of thousand dollars to travel somewhere else in the country to sit and listen to someone read something that they can just send you in a split second over the interwebs and you can read on your own. If it were the case that the Q&A sessions and conference panels were better, and sometimes they are. I think it's a rare occasion, but sometimes there's a genuinely good conversation that goes on in a Q&A session. But if they were better, then there would be a purpose to do all that. But I feel pretty confident saying that for philosophers, probably the chief reason to go to a conference is the hotel bar, is the conversations that happen outside of the conference sessions. Oh, and the local restaurants. <laughs> but the conversation's there too. Cool. Right? Oh, the conversation yeah. is the thread. But I think this goes back to a point Jason made earlier earlier, I think that for us in the academic practice of philosophy, conferences are not chiefly places where we can go to share ideas, get feedback, and have a conversation. There are things I can put on my CV in order to be authorized to do other things. Things that I wrote a year and a half ago. Right. And that <laughs> that not only does not allow for a conversation to happen, it probably prevents a conversation from happening. But then to go back to podcasting as a medium, because there is no authorization, because we're self-authorized, we have a certain kind of freedom to actually engage ideas and engage one another in conversation about ideas that I think no other form of the presentation of philosophy as it's currently practiced allows. Yeah, and there's no implicit threat to changing your mind in a conversation like this. Whereas, I mean, have you ever been in a conference <laughs> session where somebody responded to the Q&A session was like, you know what, you're right. I was totally wrong. Everything, my argument in this paper was not at all what I actually think. I mean, that never happens. And even if it does happen inside the person's mind, you know, even if they do go home and think, ah, this was a bad argument or I've changed my mind about this, they're certainly not going to say it there because again, the point is the final product the publication. So you have to already have your mind made up. And nobody wants to be in a conversation with people who already have their minds made up about everything. Well, the question is then, is that actually a conversation? No, it's like what Jason said. It's a monologue, right? Right. right. Yeah. Dueling monologues. Yeah. There's no conversations among monads. <laughs> hey, we're sticking to Socratic and Platonic references, my friend. <laughs> you bring that back a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> been kind of unanimously positive about doing philosophy in the medium of podcasts, but it's not all unicorns and roses over here. There are some things that are really hard to do in this medium. And so I'm wondering, you guys, like, what are some things that you find difficult to convey about philosophy in the podcast form? This kind of was covered a little bit in our episode about specialization. But Charles used the word improvisation earlier in this conversation. And then he said, I don't know if we should call it improvisation because that seems to lack depth. But if you think about, for example, jazz improvisation, or even comedic improvisation, that kind of free play of ideas and the free play of the music or the free play of the scene and the comedy, 
that requires an intense amount of training. Mm. And people, we're trained professionals. Don't try this at home. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that for me, one of the difficulties is to bring that expertise to an audience but without appearing as, well, I'm the expert in here. Let me tell you what the truth is. That's really hard for me. For me, one of the challenges in this medium is that we know that we have an audience who are not all trained philosophers. And often when we speak to one another, we do so with a series of shorthands. I can just say the thing in itself and everyone knows you know, the whole two or 300 year <laughs> history that I'm referring to there. And I think that that's sometimes hard is that we can't just say, as Spinoza said, or the difference between logos and phusis without having to explain them. Now, I also think that's a great advantage of this form because I think it really does show how sharp your training is if you can explain in the vernacular, as I often say, what your argument is, what your ideas are, and briefly and concisely the references that are important to understanding those arguments and ideas. But it is still the case that there are sometimes when we're in the midst of a conversation, and I think it would be so much easier to say it, you know, in this kind of shorthand way that I would say normally at a conference or amongst philosophers. And, you know, it's challenging to think that maybe I'm not really giving a nuanced account of what I'm trying to convey because I can't assume that all of those references are readily accessible to listeners. I would agree not going down rabbit holes is the huge challenge because as Rick said, if we're improvising, which takes a certain degree of skill and experience, you want to chase that rabbit in your improvisation because you're trying to hammer out the most clear, the most defined, the most polished idea You don't want to leave it gruff. You don't want to leave it gritty. Let's clean it. Let's give it a sheen. Let's give it its full clarity. And sometimes it means going into what for non-philosophical listeners or non-trained philosophical listeners would be something that's incredibly obscure and vague and just sort of muddy in terms of what exactly we're saying. So it's hard not to do that. But I do like the fact that I think we've attained a certain level of balance that we can explain something in a fairly quick shorthand. I mean, Rick is able to talk about Adorno like he's wielding a six-shooter. Yeah, just a slight peek behind the curtain for our listeners. I mean, it doesn't always go well, right? Like there are plenty of parts of this conversation that are left on the editing room floor, and there are entire episodes that have been left on the editing room floor because we were just chasing rabbits or not making sense or not explaining ourselves very well. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it's not as if there aren't unique challenges to doing philosophy in this medium, just as there are in writing or in the classroom. And I come from a tradition, frequently referred to as the continental tradition, in which reading texts carefully, closely, struggling with interpretation is what we do. And we think that's important as a philosophical practice. And we think about the ways in which the tradition of philosophy is crucial to doing philosophy, even in this kind of conversation. But it's really not great audio for us to engage in a sort of line by line <laughs> close reading of. But what was that in the German? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think the audio medium of this podcast, and I recognize there are podcasts that also include video, ours is not one of them, but the audio nature of the podcast puts limitations on what parts of my own philosophical practice I can bring to the audience and what 
parts I have to leave behind because, well, they're not entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I'll follow up with that question. Is it at the forefront of consciousness to be entertaining? Obviously, we can see the benefits of that, but are there problems with if that's at the forefront of your thinking, that we have to keep this punchy, we have to make sure that we have a laugh line for the audience or whatever we think is entertaining. Is that part of the limit or a part of a problem for public-facing philosophy? That's a tough question, Charles. I don't think that it's in my mind to be entertaining when we record our podcasts. I think you guys are entertaining and you entertain (laughs) me and I become more entertaining when I'm in conversations with you. But I don't ever really feel that is the case that I'm thinking that I need to be entertaining. And often when I listen back to our episodes, I am entertained in surprising ways. I'm like, oh, wow, that was really funny. Or that was a really good point. Or that was a really good exchange. And that may not have been how I experienced it in the moment. I didn't experience it in the moment as, oh, this is entertaining content. I agree wholeheartedly that I never have in the forefront of my mind that this should be entertaining. But I do have in the forefront of my mind that I can't rely on any of the technical language of philosophy because, first of all, We have audience members who come from different perspectives in philosophy. We have audience members who come from outside of academic philosophy. So I can't rely on that kind of jargon. And so I do think that engagement, I guess, maybe is a better way to put it than entertaining. It really just is not engaging if the three of us were to sit down and start reading together the first page of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. (laughs) Don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) It's funny that we keep coming back to the idea that the thing we don't want to do is reading. Because for me, I just think of the fact that reading is a very different way of getting ideas than speaking is. I mean, sometimes like when I'm at a conference, I hear someone read a paper that's very well written, but I'll kind of tune it out and say like, I'm just going to ask them for a copy afterwards. This isn't a thing made for me to hear. This is a thing made to be read. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a challenge sometimes to recognize that what reads well on the page doesn't work well when spoken aloud. And there's just some things that can be conveyed differently. I mean, the thing we can't do is we can't stop and read. And I do sometimes want to stop and read, not for the jargon, not for the authority, just because it is a different way of looking at an idea. Laid out on the page, it forces you to think about the connections between words and concepts in a way that doesn't quite happen when you're hearing them. It's just a different mode of reception. I would hope that maybe sometimes, you know, if done well, we could give a concise version that works well for the podcast that might get people to think, oh, maybe I'll try to read that. And then, of course, they'll curse us later when they open up contact. Curse you! (laughs) (laughs) Jason, this goes back to a point that was made earlier, namely that one of the benefits of writing and that my reading something that's written all by myself is that there could be incredible complexity and intricacy of argumentation, of language, that really does need the slowness and the carefulness that only reading can allow. I don't think, though, we give up complexity or intricacy in a podcast. We just have to go about that in a different way. And that's a kind of exciting thing about the medium is what a complexity, and to use a word Charles used earlier, depth and intricacy can be conveyed when you don't have the tools that writing allows. Yeah, it's a very different rhythm. Spoken conversation has a very different rhythm than writing does. And on the topic of timing, I wanted to ask you guys about 
Another thing that I think is challenging about doing philosophy in podcasting, which is that every time we're recording one of these conversations, do you know what we're not doing? We're not reading, we're not writing, and we're not teaching. (laughs) And I don't want to dissuade Jason, who literally just sat down (laughs) in the bar and became a co-host. You know, I don't want to dissuade him from going forward with this, but it is something that we are committing a part of our time to, and that is time that isn't being committed to the way that philosophy is done and rewarded. And so I wonder, how do you justify to yourself spending the time to do this? I justify it because I see it as a part of my intellectual work. Mm -hmm. To me, this is learning. So it's not just me spouting whatever ideas I think I have. It's me listening to you two, learning from you, rethinking assumptions that I'd had about this idea or this text or this figure. So this is like a listening library for me in many ways. Mm. So that's how I justify it because what we talk about here what I reconsider here, what I reflect and meditate on here, it feeds into other things that I'm doing, whether it's my teaching or whether it's the writing or whether it's the reading. I'm going to go back through and just create bibliography of books that my interest has been sparked because of the conversations that we've been having. I mean, there should be a Hotel Bar Sessions Amazon page of just right recommended <laughs> texts and movies and songs and musicals from our mm-hmm. podcast. So this is a part of my larger public-facing pedagogical project, but it's certainly a big part of of my intellectual mission. If my university were to come to us and say, I want to close the philosophy department, we would be screaming and saying, how could you do this? This is short-sighted. And we will start making all sorts of arguments about the importance of philosophy in the education of people. And we've all seen these arguments being made on the internet because sadly, a lot of universities turn to philosophy departments, put them on the chopping block in order to save money. So to the extent that we think that philosophy is important and therefore we want to argue for its presence in the university, why not all the more so arguing for its importance in the public sphere in general? And by the way, maybe if it were more public, then there wouldn't be so much public pressure on philosophy departments. You know, what are you doing now? What are you producing? What are you making? So that's one side of it. And then the other side, and this goes back to a topic that keeps coming up in this conversation, faculty members are not rewarded for this. Mm. I am evaluated each year on the basis of my teaching, on the basis of my research, and on the basis of the service I have done to the university and also to the community. At least DePaul allows community service. I mean, not the one that's mandated through the courts, but (laughs) community service to count as service. But I couldn't put this on my annual evaluation. I smuggle it in and I say, I'm really proud of this and so on. But I think that without the reward structure in academia, it's really difficult for podcasters to carve out the time because, as you say, that time is being carved out of things that I am getting rewarded for. I just want to give a shout out to my department chair, Brew Wallace, because I do put this podcast on my annual evaluation and he is so good about articulating why this is important and why it should be included in my annual evaluation. I do think that, you know, 
with some effort, we can move more towards that as a model, more towards the recognition of content and products like this as part of our philosophical work that is evaluated and rewarded. But if I could just pick up on something that Charles was saying, you know, he said, I consider this time that I spend here a part of my intellectual development. I completely agree with you, Charles. I also think that, and in particular in the last couple of seasons, as we've had more guests on, I have expanded just my community of contacts. Now I've met people whose work I find really interesting that I wanted to talk to, and I've kept in contact with them over time. I've learned so many new things. One of the great things I think about the last few seasons with Rick and Charles and the upcoming seasons with Jason is that although we have a lot of overlap in our interests and our training, we are very different philosophers and we have very different concerns and we have very different positions on some things. And so it's not as if I'm just sitting down with people who largely agree with me on anything anyway. I learn a lot. I have learned a lot from both of you and I've learned a tremendous amount from the guests that we've had on the show. So it's not a challenge to me to justify the time I'm spending doing this, but it is time that I'm not doing something else. And I just want to go back to what Rick said earlier about recreating grad school. And I think that there's something really important in that notion, although there are parts of grad school that I've never want to relive. <laughs> Again, <laughs> same. But I do think that when I think of recreating grad school or trying to recreate some of that atmosphere, to me, it's really about the idea that thinking is a collective process. I mean, we're sold mm-hmm. on this notion that we are developing ourselves as individuals, we get our own research, our own teaching, and we're doing this in isolation. But I think the lesson I took from grad school is that it is more useful to think with other people. People and you learn more by thinking with other people. And to some extent, once we leave grad school, we're all cut adrift from that atmosphere. It's a space where a certain kind of thinking can happen. And we're cut adrift by that because sometimes in our own departments, we're too focused on the day-to-day functioning of the department to really engage with that. Or a lot of times we're hired because we don't have the same perspectives or backgrounds or interests as anyone else yeah. in our department. So we're kind of cast and set all over the, the country. And we try to recreate in our all different ways, you know, that intellectual atmosphere. But I do think that for me, anything that gets me thinking with and around other people who have similar but also different ways of looking at things is always going to be productive. So I do think that part of my interest in this is the idea that no one really thinks alone. Mm -hmm. As Althusser says, a communist never thinks alone. (laughs) We're all commies here. (laughs) Take that, Descartes. Exactly. Lately, I've been writing this essay together with my friend Christopher Long about Richard Bernstein, who passed away recently. And one of the most important influences on Dick Bernstein's thought is the pragmatic tradition. And so in writing this essay, we came upon these two arguments that Peirce makes. One is that it is in fact in encountering people with whom I disagree that my own beliefs are shaken and I'm forced to change them. And therefore, it's only in community that we can make a move towards something like truth. Mm -hmm. And then in a different place, Peirce makes an even stronger claim, namely that reality is constituted in and by community. And this is to emphasize the point I think you were just making, Jason. Doing philosophy with you all is a way for me to practice this construction of reality and also this movement towards something like truth. And I can't do that alone. You know, we all try to mimic it that I'm doing it with the text or something like that. But the worst philosophy that's done is without any other voice intervening and without any even semblance of dialogue or conversation. 
listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. So, Charles, now that I'm taking your place, sort of, I can't really take your place, but <laughs> evening, and I'm coming as a co-host, any advice on how to navigate this strange parasocial world called podcasting with these particular personas that we call Rick and Lee <laughs> as co-hosts? Gently, gently. I'm more than happy to pass on the stool to you, Jason. <laughs> no, Charles, you're keeping your stool. You're just passing your mic. You're still going to be here at the bar with us. I would say, well, and you already know this, this, this is going to be an amazing experience. These two are fantastic podcasters. I've been fortunate enough to watch the development of that technical facility with the medium grow and expand by leaps and bounds. I think we have one of the best produced and sounding podcasts around, and that's all to them and the work that they do. And I never told them how much I appreciate it, but I really, really do. We all sound like geniuses because of both of your editing and your insights. To be fair, it's mostly Lee. (laughs) Uh, But you can tell as well, they're great friends. This is a community now that you have entered into, and these two are the pillars of that community. So appreciate that. I'm sure you will. With Lee, be patient. (laughs) I think the switch is going to be helpful because Lee and I are both fairly passionate and can be very hot-headed people. So there will be certain types of conflicts that will not be going forward. (laughs) And that's okay. I don't mask well. No, neither do I. So that's good though, right? Because to creative tension, Rick's taste in music is absolute shit. So just, I'm just telling you, <laughs> if you could get him to listen to something made after 1985, then I, that would be a huge leap forward for the podcast. But uh, in all seriousness, I would say, just be yourself. We don't have faces. There's a certain type of structure, but ultimately, I think what makes this work and where you'll fit in so well is that you are an intellectually, emotionally, collegially honest person. Yeah. And to the readers, to the listeners rather, I've known Jason since we were both young men in graduate school together. Just continue to be that guy. And it's going to be absolutely amazing to listen to from the end of the bar. Thanks. <laughs> and if I can, Charles, this point about honesty sort of wraps up a lot of the threads of this conversation, because I think that for a podcast, for our podcast in particular, honesty is required in order for the conversation to be an actual conversation. That is an important aspect, I think, of every podcast, a certain level of honesty. Yeah, bring your whole self to it. Yeah, I'm going to really miss some of Charles's consistently recurring themes. No, I love how she said some. Yeah, some. some. <laughs> no, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about having Charles, I don't know that he would use this term, but I think that Charles is a deeply spiritual, maybe even religious person, which I'm not. And I think that has been some of the heart of some of our disagreements. But I've so appreciated the fact that he's pushed me to think more about this transcendent spiritual 
dimension of our lives and our conversations and our world. And I'm going to miss that. And I'm actually really looking forward to Jason to seeing sort of what your recurring themes are going to be. You know, we don't know really until you spend a lot of time in conversation with people. What are the questions that always keep creeping back in? What are the positions that always seem to frame arguments that you're making and the questions that you're asking? So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And I'm really going to miss Charles. Yeah, this process really exposes you. You know, and it's great because it's a good way to see who you are because of this relationship that I have with the pod and with Rick and Lee. I'm much more clear about who I am as a thinker and as a person than I had been before. So that's been extremely helpful. And that's a way to circle back and answer Lee's question about justifying time, right? One of the ways to justify the time we spend doing this is that it makes each of us clearer on our own thinking about all sorts of things, things we've talked about, but also things we haven't talked about. This has been a great season, Rick and Charles, and it looks like <laughs> Noel is giving us last call for season five. Jason, we're so glad that we had you with us here to wrap up season five and really looking forward to season six with you. I want to remind our listeners that you can go over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. It is the thing that keeps podcasting going. I mean, we say that, but we would do it anyway, but it helps us keep this podcast going. <laughs> so Charles, I got your drinks tonight. And I got your ride. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Well, you know, Jason, here's the mic, man. Take it where you want to take it. Thanks. I'm looking forward to figuring out what my voice is too in this show. I'm kind of on a voyage of self-exploration as well, as you pointed out. So really, is the unpodcast life worth living? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's cheaper than therapy, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Uh, Definitely. (laughs) 